Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Recently, a young woman at a university seminar stood up and asked a famous Christian apologist a question that challenged the idea that once someone is saved, she will always be saved and cannot lose her salvation. This is known as the doctrine of assurance. We believe it, and we have done Bible studies that support the doctrine with Scripture. However, the student raised a particular verse that seems to contradict the doctrine, and that's going to be part of our starting point for today's lesson. I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Balog. Welcome to another 20-minute Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised, I worship you. I've heard two arguments over the years, the first of which is uh, you cannot lose your salvation right. or the once saved, always saved. And the second one is salvation is something that must be maintained or something you can lose. Right. Um, an argument I've heard for the first one is there's a verse that says, no one can take you from the palm of my hand. And one of the many arguments I've heard for the second one is the parable of the talents. Um, so my question is, what do you believe and what is your greatest defeating argument? I think the parable of the talents is talking about the, um, it's talking about judgment based on the gifts that God has given you. I don't think it's talking about whether or not someone's saved. Because um, in the end, it says that they go to the person who gave them the talents in the end, and he says, um, depart from me, I never knew thee. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying, that, that aspect of it. But I don't, I don't know if the parable of the talents has much to do with whether or not you're saved. Uh, I personally think once saved, always saved, but I realize Christians disagree with that. And one of the reasons I think once saved, always saved is when Jesus says in John 5, 24, he says, he who believes is passed from death into life. In other words, you get eternal life when you believe. You don't get eternal life when you die. If you get eternal life when you believe and it's eternal, by definition, you can't lose it. Okay. Now, what you can do is you can lose your sanctification because, see, there's two aspects to this. There's justification, which happens immediately as soon as you believe. And then there's sanctification, which is an ongoing process where hopefully you're becoming more like Jesus. This sanctification thing can go up and down. But once you're justified, you're justified. And what you, can't, what you don't gain by moral effort, you can't lose by moral ineptitude. What you just heard is the audio of that Q&A we mentioned earlier. We don't know the young woman's name, but the man answering is one of my favorite Christian apologists and thinkers, Frank Turek. Among other things, Mr. Turek, actually I think he's a PhD, so technically he's Dr. Turek, does talks around the country where he takes questions like this from live audiences. This particular one comes from the YouTube channel for his ministry, Cross Examined. In his reply, I like how Dr. Turek separates and explains justification and sanctification. I also like his little saying at the end, which is a great way to describe the meaning of John 10, 28. 
When Jesus says no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand, that includes the sheep themselves. As Dr. Turek says, we can't lose by moral ineptitude or sin what we didn't gain in the first place, what we didn't gain from our own moral effort. And that's perfect. Dr. Turek also says that this sanctification thing can go up and down, but once you're justified, you're justified. Exactly. Right. So when we talk about salvation of the soul as an ongoing process of salvation, that's what we mean. It's sanctification, which goes up and down. In this sense, you can be saved and then unsaved over and over again. And we'll explain that. Sanctification is a state you can enter and leave based on your behavior. But when we talk about spirit salvation and the assurance we have of that salvation, this is also what we mean. Once you're justified, you're justified. Once saved, always saved. Yeah, this is great stuff, Jordan. But to clear things for our listeners, we have to hammer the point that Christians are made up of three parts, a trinity of sorts. And that makeup is the spirit, the soul, and the body. Now, to clarify, our spirit is justified the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our only Savior. This is a one-time act that occurred in the past and is when we received the Holy Spirit that's sealed in us. Now, our soul is sanctified daily as we strive to live holy lives according to the Word of God, praying and confessing our sins. We do this in the hopes of having our soul saved in the future at the Bema Seat of Christ. And that's the reward of having entrance into Jesus's millennial kingdom. On the other hand, our bodies will be saved at the rapture when Christians are resurrected. And keep in mind, the old nature, our old nature will be left behind at the rapture. And then all of us will be led by Christ into heaven to his Bema seat to see if we are worthy yet to receive our glorified body. You know, the Apostle Paul spoke of these three parts, or what we call the trichotomy of man in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, where he writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you notice the three parts there. Paul taught us and understood the importance of identifying each part of a Christian's makeup, the spirit and the soul and the body. Each is saved in a different way and for different reasons. And that's where we get the words justification, sanctification, glorification. Yeah, and I just want to mention, Andy, and we've talked about this in a previous lesson. This was the dominant view of the church for about the first three centuries, I believe. And it was only later on that we got to the point of what they call dichotomy, which is spirit and soul kind of got mushed together. So it was spirit slash soul and body. And, and some of this doctrine has been lost. But if you go back and read the writings of the early church fathers, the trichotomy was an um, important part of Christianity. It was settled doctrine. It wasn't, I mean, now it sounds a little bit what are you talking about? Three parts. And you just gave the main proof verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which shows it. But 
I think these days it sounds a little bit strange to our ear because other doctrines have crept in and we've kind of lost that early church doctrine. But once again, the trichotomy, the the three and one of man was, was established doctrine for the first three centuries of the church. Yeah. And I'd just like to say how blessed we are today that the Lord has graced us with being able to see that now. And really it all comes down to all Christians today are, are, are really exposed to so many different avenues of studying the word of God. I mean, we have so many different books and different, you know, websites that we can review and provide due diligence and, and really study the word of God in an accurate way. So, you know, we do believe it is the end times and we're blessed that we have access and, and have the capability to study the word and see those differences again. Amen. So let's go back to the young woman's question and address it. She wants what she calls a, quote, defeating argument for the belief that the parable of the talents says we can lose our salvation. She's confused because she thinks the parable ends with the man saying to the worthless servant, depart from me, I never knew thee. That's actually incorrect. She's thinking about Matthew 7, not this parable. We can address that as well. But let's first look at how the parable of the talents actually ends. Okay. So the parable of the talents is in Matthew chapter 25. And here are the last three verses. Verse 28. Therefore, take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. Verse 29. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Verse 30, and throw the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The key to understanding this parable lies in verse 30. It's the words outer darkness. Yes, Andy and I have done past Bible studies on the outer darkness which you can access on our website at 20mbs, that's for Minute Bible Studies, .org. In case you're a new listener, the words outer darkness are translated as shade. In the Greek, it's skatos or skotos. It means the shade, and that isn't to be confused with the lake of fire, which is a place reserved for the devil and all non-believers. To really simplify this and compress it into a short period of time, Outer darkness or shade suggests um, the portion outside of the direct light of Jesus. It's the, in another episode, we called it the place outside of the lighted palace. It's where unfaithful Christians will be placed for the thousand-year kingdom. Like Moses, they will be able to see the promised land, but will not be able to enter. In that place, Christians will be weeping and gnashing their teeth when they see what they will miss out on. You know, another good biblical type of this is Esau, Jacob's brother. And if you remember, he sold his birthright for the hunger of his flesh. Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament, verses 16 to 17, tells us, quote, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And that's the key word. He sought it with tears, thus suggesting the connection there, weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Yes, and we've covered a lot of um, perhaps difficult material in a short period of time. So I strongly recommend that if you just listen to that and you have some pushback in your mind or you're not sure, of course, go to the Word of God. That's the first place to go. Revisit it for yourself. But also we have a helpful Bible study, 20-minute Bible study called Outside the Lighted Palace. And that's, uh, again, on the website, 20mbs.org, with all of our episodes, which are available for free. So check that out. We get into much more detail about this and establishing the scriptural truth that we just stated. Um, Now, going back to Matthew 7 and what the woman was really quoting, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples, this is verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. So yeah, that sounds pretty bad. You know, we're left to imagine someone who is such a strong believer He could cast out demons and perform miracles, yet he is rejected by Jesus and kicked out of heaven. I mean, no wonder this causes believers to fear and doubt their salvation. We can imagine people thinking, what if I sin too much? Or what if I'm not doing God's will? Will I end up in hell? But those of us with spiritual ears and eyes will immediately notice the critical words here. Jesus says, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is about the kingdom of heaven, not heaven. And it is about entering the kingdom. In other words, it's about inheritance and not salvation. Exactly, Jordan. You know, and being that we were talking about, and you know, you quoted Matthew chapter seven, our listeners need to remember that this is during the Sermon on the Mount. And these teachings were given to the disciples who followed him up on the mountain. They actually separated themselves from the crowd below so that he could teach his disciples a deeper teaching. That's number one. And all those disciples, by the way, were saved already. That's right. And then going forward, we also see that in this parable, Jesus is quoting this person as saying, Lord, Lord. Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that it is only by the Holy Spirit that is sealed within us, according to Ephesians 4.30, that anyone could even call Jesus Lord, especially if Jesus is quoting this. So here we see even more that these are Christians. And then if we get a little more focused here, we see there it says on in verse 21 that, but the one who does the will of my Father, does refers to works. And we know in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that salvation is by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. So here's that contradiction. If you don't know the difference between the salvation of the Spirit, which represents our everlasting life, just getting into heaven, and then, of course, the salvation of the soul, which is where works is done by the works of the Holy Spirit in us, that refers specifically to entering the kingdom of heaven, which is the reward portion of our salvation, which specifically speaks of coming back with Jesus Christ and ruling and reigning with him during his millennial kingdom back on the earth. So yes, Jordan, you know, one of the main goals of our ministry is to share with believers what the Bible teaches regarding this topic. And of course, like I mentioned, this is known as the salvation of the soul. 
Right, or sanctification, as uh, Dr. Turek put it. You know, in the end, the woman who asked Dr. Turek that question was confused, as many Christians are confused, because she doesn't yet understand the difference between the gift and the prize, salvation and reward, adoption and inheritance. The worthless servant in the parable of the talents didn't lose his salvation. He lost his opportunity to gain reward. He lost his chance at abundance. He lost his chance to live inside the lighted palace. Instead, he was cast out of the palace and into that dark place of regret, the shade, where lazy servants who did not work for their master weep over losing eternity's greatest opportunity for reward. But here's the thing. Even the place of regret outside the kingdom is still inside the realm that resides in the palm of our Lord's hand. And no one, I mean no one, can snatch anyone out of that realm. Amen. We have some time left, so let's do a conversation question. You know, Andy, even those who accept assurance sometimes experience a related syndrome of doubt that involves doubting whether their salvation or the salvation of someone they love was real. We might call this if saved, always saved, with a focus on the if. The if is in doubt. You know, our sound editor, JP, recently made me aware that there are two schools of thought within Christian circles. One is called the Lordship Salvation, and the other is called Easy Believism. In a nutshell, the former teaches that those who are truly saved will show signs of that salvation. They'll demonstrate the Lordship of Christ in their lives. That's why it's called Lordship Salvation. And if they don't, they're probably not really saved. The other teaches that, as its name suggests, it's easy. You simply believe and you're saved once for all. Demonstrating salvation outwardly is not necessary, you know, to prove that you're saved or whatever. Of course, I'm oversimplifying these two arguments, and I'm sure there are important nuances that these two schools of thought, you know, would argue that I'm missing. But maybe we can talk about it a little bit in general, and and let me do that by giving you a for instance. What do you make of someone who claims he believes in Jesus, but then behaves in ways that are pretty much indistinguishable from the way that a lost man would behave? Let's say right after church, he hits the bar and then cheats on his wife. Ugh. I hate to say it. That probably happens uh, much more often than we think, you know. But, but let's be realists for a moment and realize that we are all sinners. Whether it's hitting the bar, cheating on your wife, or, you know, being cut off on the highway and saying a, saying a bad word or, you know, screaming and having anger or unforgiveness in our heart. I mean, we can go on and on on the levels of sin and how many sins that we can accumulate in a day. The key to remember here is that we always must believe and trust the word of God. And isn't that what faith is really all about? It's not just saying, well, I have faith in God and I have faith in Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. We have to believe that that word is a living thing. Hebrews tells us that in chapter four. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So that being considered, we need to know what the Bible says regarding salvation. Now, I'll give you an example. Let's think about the man, and I know we've talked about this in the past, and you know it's just a common discussion that people might have, where there's no works, and yet someone can be saved. And I often think of the man on death row, right? This is a man that was, you know, probably 
a murderer or, you know, did something malicious throughout his life and, and just lived like the devil, if you will. And then on the day that he has an opportunity to, to confess his sins, he finally breaks down and decides to pray and accepts Jesus as his savior. He confesses his sins. Now, at that point, he doesn't have any time to do any works. Now, does that mean that, you know, that guy doesn't get a chance to make it to heaven? Uh, who are we to judge whether he believed or not? Because remember, our salvation simply comes down to what Jesus did on a cross. It's the finished work on a cross. There's nothing we can do. And it comes down to our faith, not our works. And of course, this is where there's an overlap between lordship salvation and easy believism. I mean, I don't think either one should be, you know, separate. I think they all need to be, especially in these last days, we need to consider both. However, we need to understand that while at the at, at the same time, both have very key points, but both are missing. And what they're missing, the major, the major key here is that they're missing that salvation by grace is for the spirit, and that's everlasting. And salvation into the kingdom is regarding the millennial kingdom, earning that opportunity to be joint heirs with Christ. If you don't know the difference, you're constantly going to have this debate, and no one's going to win this argument. Yeah, that's a key point, I think. Um, you know, once you understand the difference between the gift and the prize, some of these controversies go away because if all you know is the milk doctrines and all you know is salvation, then maybe you're constantly worried about whether you're truly saved or not based on works. But once you understand the true purpose of works and, wh and what you said is key, they, they overlap. So maybe it's, you know, if we were to describe it using these buzzwords, it's easy believism for justification, but then there's a, uh, a sanctification and a reward and the kingdom to think about, and that's lordship salvation. So when you understand the difference between the spirit and soul salvation, I think these things start being so much of an issue. And another thing you said that um, that I think is really critical is like, who are we to judge? And I think there's a danger here that when you get into trying to assess, particularly other people, whether they're truly saved or not, you do get into a bad place of incorrect judgment. And uh, you know, and, and then I, I can see all kinds of divisions and potentially all kinds of. Um, you know, questioning going on that's definitely not godly. I mean, each of us has enough to worry about our own walk than to start saying, well, that guy's probably not saved and what should we do about that? Or, you know, is, is he a, is he a, um, a tear among the weed? And it, it's, it's just a little too judgmental and a slippery slope for me. You know what, Jordan, you are hundred percent right. And for all our listeners, that's actually biblical. And I'm going to have you go with me to Romans chapter 10, starting in verse six to seven. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So you have it there. It's not our job to judge and, and know exactly who is predestined to be a born-again Christian and who isn't. We got to remember just to keep loving, shine God's light as much as we can, because though our timetable has already been called and, and we know that we're saved, 
but there's so many people around us that maybe haven't accepted Jesus as Savior yet. So our job is to continue to set an example to them and continue to give them the gospel of grace because someday soon their number will be called and they'll have an opportunity to accept Jesus. That's 20 minutes and that's our lesson. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple. Our music was recorded by the Abundant Life Worship Center. Our sound editor is J.P. Eli. I'm Steve Zioli, and until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.